Hi, this is Dan Sullivan, and I'm here with Jeff Madoff, and we have our next episode here of Anything and Everything. And just to be true to the title, I'd like to talk about the queen today, Jeff, the queen, you know, not the... (laughs) Not the Queen, and that's sort of a point that I make in my thoughts about Queen Elizabeth, that when you say the Queen these days, you're not talking about the Queen of France or the Queen of Russia or the Queen of Japan. You're you're just talking about the one Queen. If you don't look at it as royalty or you don't look at it as politics, but you look at it from the standpoint of that the monarchy of England is probably a powerful brand. And we could talk about that in light of the disruptions that have been caused by family members or the crises, the chaos that's created by family members. And it's sort of current these days, and it brings up branding of celebrities, branding of Hollywood celebrities, and one in particular who's really massively successful as a branded celebrity, and that's Oprah Winfrey. So I'd just like to talk about this. And what twigged my notice of this is there was an interview with Prince Edward. I said, Prince Edward, Prince Edward. And I had to go and look it up. I had forgotten, you know, that she's got four children. She had Charles, who's the heir, or he might not live long enough to actually (laughs) succeed his mother. And then there's Princess Anne, who's kind of like a stalwart type of royal who does ribbon cuttings and does openings of various events, has a lot of charitable work. And then there's Andrew, who became infamous because he was caught up in the Jeffrey Epstein sex scandal, whatever that may lead to. And he was removed from all of his royal duties because it's kind of in violation of the brand of what he's accused of doing. And then there's this fourth one, very, very interesting, 57. He's 57 years old. And I said, gee, I've just not seen anything of him. I can't know if I've ever read anything about him. So, you know, Wikipedia is great. So I went and looked it up. You know, he just slipped through the seams. In his early days, he did a stint in the Marines, military in England. And then he went into acting and theater. And then he created a video company. He did a lot of interesting things. And then he met and married a woman who owned her own PR firm. She was a commoner. And they got married. And that's the last I heard of them. And that's probably 30 years ago. So, But anyway, everybody was interviewed about the Megan and Harry complaints against the royal family. And they used the Oprah, you know, Oprah with her global reach to, you know, say, unpleasant things about the royal family and everybody around the royal family. And they finally asked Edward about it. And his first comment was, Oprah who? (laughs) And of course, the whole internet just went crazy with this, you know, dumb royals, you know, and everything like that. But I was thinking about it from his standpoint. He's obviously chosen and has been allowed to just be out of the limelight as a royal for his entire life, that probably he's got some perspective on what the royal brand is and how the royal brand keeps going, just in the example of this mother's 80 years. And so I guess what we should start with is, what is a brand? You know, what constitutes a brand? What's the criteria for being a brand? Mm -hmm. You know, because when I think back on 
our history in terms of the United States, the closest we came to that was probably John Kennedy and the notion of Camelot, you know, where there was this young, at the time, new generation person, good looking. Almost like a prince. Yeah. Handsome young man, beautiful wife, two beautiful young kids, and also the first president to effectively use television, Mm -hmm. which got the brand image out there. And to this day, we're still, you know, most of the nation is still enraptured by the Kennedy myth. Mm -hmm. So brand, what is a brand? How would you define it, Dan? Well, back when I was in the advertising days, the concept, and I think it came out of one of the big New York agencies from the 50s, and that was share of mind that when a word is said, your brain automatically goes to the image of a person or goes to the image of a thing. And as far as you're concerned, that represents whatever is being talked about. And I sat in on a great seminar that you gave at the New School on branding and that you were just putting some, you know, logos up on the screen and said, what do you think of when you say this? And the audience was quite young. You're talking about brands that might have been 100 years old, 150 years. Coke is probably about 120, 130 years old. But Coke, I mean, just immediately, there's a share of mind and... I think the object of brand makers is that there isn't room in other people's minds for anything except the image of this one category, you know, the one representative of one category. So that would be a starting, that was my pawn. I moved my white pawn out one square (laughs) (laughs) on the branding chessboard here. But I think it has something to do with brain positioning. Yeah, I think that hand in glove with the brain positioning is, you know, that mental real estate you're talking about that gets taken up with what a brand is, which to me implies an emotional connection. Mm -hmm. So if you are a brand such as Apple, you know, Apple has succeeded in basically creating a cult following Mm -hmm. and that, you know, you can look at their Apple. Their 1984. Yes. Yeah, where they were the David against the Microsoft Goliath. Well, IBM, really. At that IBM. Point. Yeah, it was IBM, right, Tim. And, you know, it's interesting because a lot of people don't know that all logic would tell you that IBM would have owned the personal computer market. But when we talked generationally about how things are perceived, the big blue, the suits at IBM thought there's no executive that's going to want a keyboard on their desk because it's going to make them look like they're a secretary. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they were wrong (laughs) in a huge way, but they had an emotional investment in doing what they were doing because IBM made most of their money populating large corporations with people that maintain their massive computer systems. Mm -hmm. So they almost had to think, unless they were really innovative, they almost had to think that there's not a market for the personal computer. It's like a typewriter, Mm -hmm. you know, and no executive is going to want that on his desk. Mm -hmm. Well, that was wrong, hugely wrong. Mm -hmm. And that Steve Jobs was a brilliant brand steward. 
And so he created this brand. And I say to my students, and probably 80% of the class, by the way, is filled with PC laptops. And I say to them, here's the difference. How many of you get excited about buying a Dell (laughs) computer, right? Nobody's excited. It may be just as functional and just as good a value. As a matter of fact, probably a better value for the processing power, which Apple never talks about and everything else. But Apple has set up an entire belief system, Mm -hmm. which is another part that's important about a brand and relates to the royalty you're talking about, where the other ones are commoditized. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a huge difference between a commodity and the brand. Mm -hmm. So people are excited about Apple. They buy into the entire ecosystem and Apple is very smart the way they set that up. So the brand is two things. One is there's an emotional connection. And the other is that a brand is a story that's well told. Mm -hmm. There's something behind it rather than just a name. It's much more than just name recognition. And, you know, Coca-Cola, great example. There's a whole story around it. Now, what is Coca-Cola really? It's carbonated sugar water with caramel color and whatever their special formula is. And that originally was actually a narcotic. Yeah, it had very small amounts of cocaine in it. Yeah, but enough to keep the kids passive. (laughs) Well, actually keep them active. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it was actually a pharmaceutical brand. Mm -hmm. But by the 20s, that was all gone. But Coca-Cola somehow became synonymous with America, sort of like what McDonald's has also done. Mm -hmm. You know, it's synonymous with American, all American. And when you think about it, take a step back and think, was that really what we want to be known for? (laughs) You know, fast food and soft drinks? You just brought up an interesting question. And that is, is that what we want to be known for? My sense about brands, they couldn't care less what you want things to be. What I mean by they have a historical impact, you know, they have momentum to them. And whoever thought up of the brand in the first place is probably not active anymore. It just found a spot in the marketplace, the marketplace of images, the marketplace of ideas, the marketplace of messages. And it's got its own momentum. I really feel that this really transcends logical intent. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, what's interesting is, and my dates may be off here a little bit, but the concept is accurate. Up until the early 2000s, there were the same top 10, 15 companies for decades. That totally shifted. Mm -hmm. That totally shifted to, you know, Google and Facebook and Amazon and Apple and, you know, these companies that were not even a thought prior to that, Mm -hmm. which in terms of relative history and years, they accelerated to the top of that list in just lightning speed, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's really interesting how people know who they are. And even you look at something more recent like Tesla the brand recognition that that has, look how long it took General Motors and Ford, you know, to build up a name and reputation and look how rapidly mm-hmm. Tesla was able to do that, you know, through Elon Musk's story. So Jeff, because you're much closer to this marketplace and closer to the activity than I am, because I'm like a, 
a one pony circus. In other words, we have strategic coach and that uses up most of my thinking about, you know, packaging and positioning and branding. But do you think that incredible new things have been learned about the art of branding that accounts for some of the accelerated speed with which these high-tech companies did? Or did they just catch a big economic wave or technological wave or a social wave that took advantage of some new capabilities right at the beginning? It's a really interesting question. And I think when brands were starting, a brand wasn't something that the consumer really thought about much. So they weren't that aware. They knew that they liked a Ford or a Chevy or a Cadillac or whatever, you know, and they were buying a car. Nobody was buying. Look, let's look at the market for consumer electronics of the last 25 years. And let's look at it for the previous hundred years. <laughs> and I don't know what that growth was, but it was geometric and explosive. Mm-hmm. So people didn't engage in the same way with their products. And then there's another factor that came into it, which is also totally new, which is social media. Mm -hmm. So it became not just what the brand wanted to tell the consumer. It's also what the consumers were telling the brand, which could bring economic pain to the brand if they didn't do certain things. So that's an interesting, very highly effective factor also. It became a major part, by the way, of investing. Yeah. Jeff, just to explore the reverse of the success stories that we've had, what about people who have poured a lot of money and a lot of talent and a lot of skill into instantly creating a brand that didn't work? They actually failed it. Can you think of some examples? Yeah. Yes, I think that's a really interesting point in terms of, so why do certain things fail? So, Because my sense is, you know, it's kind of like they write books on how to be a famous athlete, you know, how to be a Michael Jordan. But you have to realize that for one Michael Jordan, you need about 99,000 failures of people <laughs> who, didn't, who didn't make it. They probably had 60% of what he knew anyway, and actually... To a certain extent, there's kind of a mystery, perpetual mystery, why something takes hold. And others that have even much greater investment, they have much greater supposedly talent skills behind the endeavor, they don't. It would just be interesting because there seems to be a mysteriousness about this. There absolutely is. So, God, there's so much to unpack in what you just said. And I don't want to forget to address the mystery, but let me give you a couple of examples. Apple was not the first smartphone by a long shot. You know, first there was Palm. Mm -hmm. And Palm was very hot for a while. And then next that sort of knocked Palm out was BlackBerry. And BlackBerry had tied up corporate and governmental business because they had push email with the greatest security. So they did a great job of it, but they lost their edge, right? So... Those two companies owned an emerging market, ended up totally losing it to Apple. And now the two big companies that battle each other in the United States, it's Apple and Samsung, Apple winning the battle. But in Europe, Samsung sells more than Apple. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then another in that category is Nokia. You know, And Nokia was huge too in the early 
cell phone. Right. And I don't even think they exist anymore as a competitor in those markets. They may exist some way, but they don't even exist. Which is fascinating when you think about it. Oh, and by the way, you can then say, well, those early companies didn't have the advantage of the advanced analytics that Apple was able to capitalize on coming into the market a bit later, learning from their mistakes or whatever. And then I think of Google's attempt at a phone. They certainly had all the analytics and the search and everything else, and it was a huge failure. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that's kind of interesting. Do you think that, you know, for the brand creators and Steve Jobs is iconic, you know, by this stage, he's iconic. Do you suspect that his deep data analysis is something like this? Wets his finger and sees where the wind pressure is coming from. It's almost like he he has an artist's view of what will make a terrific picture. You know, there's very, very much that it's an aesthetic sense that's very combined with a deep emotional connection to something that's aesthetically unique and pleasing. But it's at a gut level. It's not at a work efficiency or work breakthrough. He's talking about something else. He's offering a kind of unique membership almost. Well, to your point, I remember uh, hearing an interview with Jobs and, you know, his arch nemesis was Bill Gates, right? And he said at one point, and this is to your point, I think you really nailed it, because what Jobs said is, I don't resent Microsoft and the products that they make. It's just that they have no taste. (laughs) And uh, I'm paraphrasing that, but that's essentially what he said. So that aesthetic, because what Apple's brand is about is cool, hip technology. They don't talk about their processor. They don't talk about anything. They show you how seductive the design is and made a user interface that was easier and more elegant to use. So that's what they did. And you're right, he applied an aesthetic because it's basically, why does this stuff have to be ugly? You know, and here's another thing. And this is what Jobs was brilliant about doing. Jobs didn't invent a smartphone, as we talked about. Apple didn't invent that. Well, they also did not invent the iPod, the Sony Walkman owned the personal listening experience before the iPod came around. Or graphic user interface. That's right. Which Xerox actually is. That's exactly right. Inventor. That's right. So what he has always been able to do is basically redesign and market way better a product that already existed. So he wasn't like, you know, an inventor as much as an adapter. And if the listeners want to do something really interesting, Google Braun, B-R-A-U-N, the company makes the appliances, and Apple. And you will see that Apple essentially appropriated Braun's product design. Braun's designer was a man named Dieter Ram, who wrote a very simple, elegant essay on the 10 essentials of good design. And when you look at Apple's designs, then you look at what was done 35 years earlier by Braun, you see the inspiration for Apple. This was a European appliance maker, was it? Yes. Or US. They sold in the US, but yes, they were European. 
and it's really eye-opening. So that's another thing is, you know, are you really the smartest to be the first to market? Or are you smarter to let somebody else mess it up and then see what worked and then make it more attractive and better? Yeah. My first computer and only computer experience my whole life has been Apple. I think it was 86 or 87. You remember the little square box, the original Mac? It was a little thing. It was about this big. Yes. But you could pick it up. The handle came built in. You could pick it up. It's very, very interesting that when Babs and I created what became Strategic Coach, a year before we started the workshop program, I was doing one-on-one coaching, and I developed a method. I had developed a particular thinking method that I could have 50 clients, and they all use the method to focus on different things. So I said, you know, I think that we can take this one-on-one method and we probably convert it into a workshop, a larger group type of activity. But the first employee that we hired was an artist and he was a 16-year-old. And the thing that got him is that we bought a Mac 2. We bought a Mac 2. A Mac 2, if you do it in present dollars, a Mac 2 with a printer, black and white printer, in today's dollars would be about $20,000. Yeah. And, you know, they also teetered on bankruptcy several times. Yeah. And to the point they got rid of Jobs, who had possibly the greatest second act ever in business when he came back and took over for Scully. You know? Yeah. Almost you think his second act was more impactful because he got fired. It was the great American comeback. That's right. It was kind of like Rocky. It was the million-dollar Cinderella Man. I think it was Cinderella Man. The thing was that, that, you know, America, part of the DNA of American culture is reinvention. Yes. You know, and one of the things I really notice about America is that you can make it young, but people are suspicious of what got you there. For example, did you just have great parents? Did you just have great uh, education? Did you just have great support? And people opened a lot of doorways. And then what they like to see is that you fail, okay? And that your failure is equal to your success. And then they want to see if you can come back. The most interesting thing about American culture is really comebacks. Well, you know, it's interesting if we look at the automobile industry, and Ford has now launched their electronic cars and trucks. And if I was Tesla, I'd be concerned, you know, because Ford has an infrastructure in place. They have distribution and dealerships. And actually their Mustang SUV electric vehicle, not only has gotten great reviews, it's cool looking. And, you know, Tesla is a very cool looking car. Mm-hmm. But then you have Ford, and most people probably can't name a CEO. And you have Tesla, and you've got a CEO who is... Who's a brand. That's right. That's right. And my theory is we always need some kind of visionary person. So there was a void when Jobs died, and that got filled by Musk. (laughs) Yeah. But I would be afraid, and this is... I'm sure it's my own financial loss, but I don't want to invest in a company where somebody's mercurial comments throw the stock up or down 30% in a day. Yeah. And, you know, or I can say, ah, we're not going to take Bitcoin. Then boom, the market, you know, hits. 
I gave a talk for a couple of quarters in Strategic Coach about collaboration. And I said, you know, we have a Tesla. We have the SUV version of the Tesla. And Babs loves it. And she's had it for three years, but I haven't driven it yet. Okay. And part of the reason there's something creepy about having a car that talks to headquarters at night. <laughs> I don't know what the feeling is. We had a Beamer, we had a BMW X5, you know, it sat in the garage at night and it just minded its business. <laughs> it wasn't being upgraded with the thought of upgrading Babs and me. I got a sense that this car is kind of a plant from a larger, darker force in the world. <laughs> anyway, but the whole point you say, I use Tesla as an example that if he had been smart, because, you know, he's in a very mature business. And if you discount all the government subsidies and government loans, it's not a profitable, the car part of his company is not a profitable company. I think he as a brand is very profitable, but I suspect that about half the value of the market price really is a belief in the man, not a belief in the technology. And I think you're right. And I think, you know, of the numerous private equity people that I have met with over the years, one of the questions I ask all of them is, what do you look for when you're going to invest in a company or put money into a company? And the answer without fail is not, we look for a unique product. It's we look at management's ability to execute on whatever it is. And, you know, this goes back to my old trope, which is it's all about relationships. Whether it's your relationship with the investment community, which I'm sure there's a significant portion that think someone like Musk is kind of too off the rails to invest in because he doesn't censure himself and you know, he doesn't have to. Mm -hmm. But the fact is that that kind of behavior scares a lot of potential investors. Yeah. The other thing is that car making is an old craft. You know, the assembly line was essentially established in the 19 teens, and it's been continually improved. And I was talking to him, I said, well, in the year that I was talking about, I said, who's the biggest car maker in the world? In that year, this was from... 2016, 17, it was Toyota and Volkswagen is just slightly ahead now, but it's about 10.5 million cars they'll produce. And I remember, I think it was the head of Ford, he was saying that, you know, the next quarter Tesla was going to produce 25,000 cars. And Ford guy said 25,000. In our system, he says that's about eight hours. Yeah. They know how to pump out cars. And right. the thing is that it's very, very high technology. And the other thing is, quite a long time ago, car companies don't exist to make a profit on their cars. They exist to have a servicing relationship with their customers over many years. And they're also the funder of the purchase of the cars. They make their money on finance and they make their money on servicing. Which, again, not unlike the old IBM model. They would finance the mainframes, and then they would populate your company with people to take care of it. And you had a lifetime relationship. That's right. Because That's right. otherwise you had to start over. That's right. And with the automobile industry, not that I know much about it, but I know this for sure, the barrier to entry is really high. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not like being an independent entrepreneur and you decide to do something. It's high cost to get into the game in the first place. The other thing you brought up when you brought up Ford that I want to go back and relate it to branding, that the branding of Ford cars pales in comparison with the branding of Ford's pickup trucks. Mm -hmm. Like I would say pickup trucks are a genre of their own. And the big three, some of the Korean company and Japanese companies, Europeans don't have anything because pickups really aren't sold in Europe because the streets are very narrow and, and everything like that. But if you look at all the advertising, and I always find the pickup truck advertising very emotional because it's very much about America's past. Right. That when you buy, it could be Dodge, it could be GMC, it could be Hyundai or one of the others, but there's about four or five of them that have established a real powerful customer base. Okay. The other thing is the average pickup truck stays on the road for about 25 years, 25, 30 years. Mm. Did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. My father died in 1993 and he had a 1954 Dodge and it was a particular size. It wasn't a pickup. It was a two-ton truck and it wasn't a big construction truck, but it was halfway in between a big construction truck and a pickup truck. Is a 54 and he died in 93, so that's 39 years. And he got offers in the last year for more than it sold for. And a classic. Yeah, it was a classic. He had a mechanic that kept it going for the last 10 years, so he, my father just gave it to him as part of his will. And the guy was delighted. <laughs> the guy knew the truck. I mean, it was a personal relationship with this piece of machinery. But the thing I'm saying is, I don't think Elon Musk has any feel for that at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, Elon Musk's images of outer space and, you know, tapping the human brain and putting fossil fuels out just seems to me to be emotionally opposite of how the pickup truck market actually positions itself. I don't know because I don't know how much that consumer is changing. Well, I will tell you this, that in 2018, the number one selling vehicle in 28 out of the 50 states was the F-150, more than any car. That's a pickup. Mm -hmm. And it's the one they've made electric now. They've made it. Well, and it's not insignificant that Ford's new launch is Mustang, which is probably the most innovative car they ever made. Yeah. And, you know, when it first came out, it was kind of the future for them. And now they're hoping to capitalize on that name for anybody who remembers it from back then. So, you know, they're trying to brand it yeah. in a particular way. Yeah. But you mentioned something earlier that I wanted to get back to, which is not to be discounted at all, which is the magic. Why does something work? Why doesn't something work? Because one would think with all the data to be harvested, you know, which is a tremendous amount, how much does that inform decisions? Mm -hmm. So I had as a guest in my class, Josh Sapan. Josh is the CEO of AMC Networks. Yeah. So I said, when you guys decided to get into original programming, which they had to do because HBO was the first to realize we're not going to be able to make it on first run movies anymore, you know, and getting them earliest. That's just not enough. We have to start producing programming. And they started producing their original programming series with The Sopranos. 
which then was a watershed moment because they saw that these kind of well, were essentially soap operas. Yeah. You know, a continuing story over time really worked. But in the history of television, that would be a brand moment. The Sopranos was like a brand moment. Well, that's right. Like Friends, it's like Seinfeld, you know. That's right. If you package them all up and sell them now, you know, as a unit, they're worth more today than they were during the entire time when they were current, yeah. Well, that's right. So I said to Josh, how much does big data play into this programming decisions you make? And he said, it's huge. And I said, how so? Well, he said, as you may know, we do numerous and different kinds of testing on programs. So the data is mined and come at from all different directions because the cost of doing a show and a pilot is substantial. And certainly if you're going to commit to one. And I said, well, then let me ask you a question. Why are there so many failures? Because everybody is looking at so much data. Why is the failure rate so high? Because most shows fail. Mm -hmm. And you've got the benefit of all this data. And he said to me, well, you know, there are certain programs like they did Mad Men, then they did Breaking Bad. And he said, there's magic. Yeah. And he said, we don't know how to measure that. (laughs) On that note, I think it's a good episode change right now because we can go on for an easy hour on magic. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's fascinating. Yeah. So let's just wrap up what we've done so far. I mean, some very, very clear things that if you don't have this, you don't have yourself a brand. One is if there's no emotional connection, you don't have yourself a brand. If you don't create some sort of unique membership on the part of the consumer, you won't have a brand for very long. And I think that the other thing is that we establish that the brand appeals to almost every other motivator, irregardless of price. Mm -hmm. Yeah, people are willing to pay more because there's two things that enter into that. Trust is huge. Once you trust the Apple brand, then you will buy the Apple phone, you will buy the iPad, you will buy other products from that company. And that's true if it's Ralph Lauren and he comes out with home furnishings and kids wear and everything. Trust is a huge factor in building the brand and that there is a story that goes along with the brand. And if you can't articulate that story simply and easily, and I think the best example of that in our wrap up is Nike, just do it, which you saw in my class, as soon as I said, what's the slogan for Nike? It was like in church, everybody in unison said, just do it. So I think that the story aspect is also a really important part of it. Yeah. And I think uh, as we go through the second hour with the whole concept of magic around branding and then using trust as a, almost like a microscope is when a brand loses its magic, they've done something to undermine trust. Mm-hmm. That's right. And are we saving that for yeah, next time? Yeah, or we, that's uh, okay. next time. Now you got me anxious to continue, Dan. So we'll get, we'll do a cliffhanger here. <laughs> I used to watch 15 minute serials at the movie theater on Saturday. You know, they always left you in a period of teasing and suspense about the next one. Will he, you know. <laughs> well, you know, actually where the term cliffhanger came from. 
Yeah, because it was probably the Westerns. Uh, yeah, and it was the hero who you would usually was believe. Was painting by the cliff. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's truly where that came from. Thanks for joining us today on our show, Anything and Everything. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. For more about me and my work, visit acreativecareer.com and madoffproductions.com. To learn more about Dan and Strategic Coach, visit strategiccoach.com.